All right, team, look, in addition to giving evidence-based recommendations, which is the whole purpose of this podcast, one of the things that I strive to do is to be very transparent, very honest with y'all, right? I mean, you know that I've got issues. I've been very honest with that. We all have issues. Some try to hide it more than others. I'll be very frank. I've got issues. And sometimes those issues kind of drive me crazy when I'm in clinic because no surprise, shocker, I'm very type A. I'm a little OCD. Uh, I get it. Yes, I know there's help out there. I realize that I'm married to a therapist, not my therapist, but a therapist nonetheless. But anyway, I I get that. And being very type A, being very constrained um, is not healthy. Don't send me a message. I realize that. But one of the issues that I came across was just yesterday in clinic where other providers, you know, trying to do the right thing, trying to be very conservative, but not following guidelines. Oh, it drives me insane. So sometimes they have to talk me down the ledge that it's going to be all right. And that was my day yesterday. Because in this podcast, I'm going to cover three things that just flip my lid because sometimes doing things just to be conservative is kind of wrong. I mean, we can be too conservative. Isn't that interesting? In medicine, you can be so kind of liberal, so cowboy that you put patients at risk. And at the same time, if you swing that pendulum over to the other side and you're super conservative, you're also putting them at risk because you're probably exposing them to tests or procedures that they probably don't need. Ah, the answer is to be right in the middle. And that's why we're here at Clinical Pearls. That's what we try to do. Well, yesterday, three different patients came across my desk uh, working with the resident team, and they all requested some form of ultrasound surveillance for us to do. So I'm like, great, that's what we're here for. Well, one of those things was advanced maternal age alone, and she was 35. The second thing was antepartum surveillance for BMI. Her BMI was 31. And the third ultrasound surveillance was for cervical length in a patient after cerclage. Each one of those made me flip my lid. Now, now I get that. I get the idea of being conservative, but that's not what the data shows. So in this podcast, I thought, why don't we cover these things? So please do not do these three things because right now, as of January the 10th, 2023, the data is just not there. So we're going to cover antepartum surveillance as a standalone indication when the issue is advanced maternal age alone. What about obesity? When should we start doing surveillance there? And should we be checking cervical length after the patient has a cerclage? Let's get to that right now. Just trying to keep everyone up to date on evidence-based practice because medicine moves real fast. This is Clinical Pearls. Oh, I know what you're thinking. Man, Chapa, I mean, seriously, super type A, right? I mean, it's not like somebody got hurt. It's not like we gave the wrong medication or we injected somebody's other sperm into another patient's IUI, which has been done just to know, not by us, but by others in the community. It happens infrequently, but it's out there. Check some national news. Anyway, uh, I get that. I I get that. Nobody was hurt. But the issue is if we're looking for problems when we really shouldn't be, I promise you we will find them. And that's why some interventions cause more harm than good. And speaking about doing more harm than good, that actually is a whole issue with antepartum fetal surveillance. Let me clarify. Let me clarify. I am not against antepartum fetal surveillance. I mean, we have the practice bulletin from the college, which is number 229. I I do it. I get it. It's a way for us to at least observe so we can try to jump in before something catastrophic happens. I I get that. That's the whole purpose of antepartum fetal surveillance. But in that same bulletin, which is number 229, 
The question is asked, is there evidence that antepartum fetal surveillance decreases the risk of fetal demise or otherwise improves perinatal outcome? So guys, this is not my opinion. This is right in the college stance. Now, before I read that verbatim from the bulletin, let me just summarize it. Look, nothing can prevent stillbirth, but at least we can do something. Try to keep our eye out for problems early to try to do some kind of intervention, but that is limited. According to the college, quote, in spite of its unproven value, antepartum fetal surveillance is widely integrated into clinical practice in the developed world, end quote. That does not mean not to do it. I'm just telling you, remember, don't give all confidence just on a test because we just don't have the ability to prevent all stillbirth. If we did, we would do that and nobody would have a stillbirth. So that brings us back to our two issues here for fetal surveillance. Remember, the two topics that, that kind of flipped me off were antepartum fetal surveillance during obesity and advanced maternal age, and we're going to talk about those right now. And then the third one was ultrasound surveillance of the cervix after cerclage. But I want to stay on this issue of antepartum fetal surveillance first, and then we're going to get into the transvaginal cervical length, all right? So now that we've set the stage that, yes, antepartum fetal surveillance either by a NST alone or a modified biophysical or a full biophysical or in some rare cases, a trial of labor as a contraction stress test. I get that. that. That's what we do. It's okay. Just remember that there's no data that it actually improves perinatal outcome or prevents stillbirth. Having said that, and knowing that that's already a limitation, let's tackle when to do antepartum fetal surveillance for advanced maternal age. This is why we do clinical pearls and why ABOG, the American Board of OBGYN, makes us read these articles as part of maintenance of certification, okay? Because things move very quickly. I mean, things kind of changed from one year to the next. So let me set the stage. In June of 2021, ACOG released its committee opinion, which was 828, all right? 828, which was indications for outpatient fetal surveillance. Fine. Has a great table in there. And one of the things in there that it lists for fetal surveillance is advanced maternal age. Great. I dig it. I'm following it. And in that section, it states that for patients at age 35 and above, as a standalone maternal indication, meaning they're not diabetic, they're not hypertensive, they're not twins, nothing else is going on, just AMA status, that women who are 35 and above, antepartum fetal surveillance indication can be, quote, individualized, end quote. Well, what does that mean? Well, that means, well, if you kind of feel like it, if you just kind of, you know, have that kind of feeling that, that maybe I should surveil her, that's fine. It's just, it's individualized. But that changed in August of 2022, almost just exactly one year later in obstetric care consensus number 11, again, August of 2022, ACOG released this consensus opinion on pregnancy after age 35. And it goes into much more detail and it's very clearly stated in here, the data for antepartum fetal surveillance between age 35 and 39, when that's the only maternal complication, is just not there. It should really begin at age 40. Now remember, if a patient has some other factors, she's diabetic, she's hypertensive, there's fetal growth restriction, I'm not talking about that. I'm saying just when the indication alone is advanced maternal age, the college actually changed the wording from June of 2021, where it could be individualized at 35 and above, to wait until the age of 40 in August of 2022. Let's get into that data right now. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. It is absolutely true that advanced maternal age is an independent variable, means it stands alone as a risk factor for stillbirth, and and that's terrible. Now, in general, the risk of stillbirth is six per thousand pregnancies across ages. All right, so if you ever ask, what's the general rate of stillbirth in the U.S.? It is six per thousand as far as we know right now. However, if you actually take a look, in older women, that number rises per thousand. So rates are highest in older women, being 10 stillbirths per thousand births for women aged 40 to 44 years, and it's 13 per thousand births in women over the age of 45. Okay, so advanced maternal age absolutely is a standalone risk factor for fetal death. However, between the ages of 35 and 39, it's actually not much higher than the general population. Remember, we said that the general rate of stillbirth is 6 per thousand overall. And the rate in women between the ages of 35 to 39 is 7.9 per thousand. You're like, well, wait a minute, it went up from 6 to 7.9. Absolutely. But in order to do antepartum fetal surveillance, the numbers, there's the statistics, the, the absolute benefit between 35 and 39 is just not there based on the absolute number or change or the rate of change of stillbirth. Does that make sense? However, because that rate does dramatically increase at the age of 40, that's why the age of 40 is called out specifically for antepartum fetal surveillance. Now, remember we set the stage that we said that antepartum fetal surveillance, there's just no data that it actually improves fetal outcome. Well, that's exactly the case here with advanced maternal age. According to this obstetrical care consensus number 11, quote, the benefit of antepartum fetal surveillance to reduce the risk of stillbirth in this population, again, the population of advanced maternal age, remains unknown because there's a lack of intervention trials or adequately powered observational studies to examine the rare outcome of stillbirth, end quote. Let's just get right to it and put this to bed. So what does ACOG say about doing surveillance in this population? Well, here it is. Quote, Based on the overall data, available data support offering antenatal fetal surveillance for pregnant women with anticipated delivery at age 40 years and older, given the increased risk of stillbirth. However, for individuals age 35 to 39, there is insufficient evidence to recommend routine antenatal fetal surveillance in the absence of other risk factors for stillbirth and whether to offer surveillance to these individuals should be individualized, end quote. All right, I get that. It doesn't say not to do it. It says there's no data for or against it. So we'll leave it at individualized. And that's basically what finally turned my face back to a normal color from being red because our patient <laughs> our patient yesterday had her only indication as advanced maternal age and she was not close to being 40. So we just went with fine, it's individualized. So the whole take-home message is between 35 and 39, the risk of stillbirth is around 7.5 per thousand compared to 6 per thousand in the overall population. And so if you want to do that, okay, 
fine, individualize it, but the data is really strongest for age 40 and above. Remember, there is some risks with looking at the increases in intervention. It may not overall change any outcome, but we'll just leave it at that. Now let's tackle the issue of obesity and antepartum fetal surveillance and what is the BMI to start that with. ACOG released its practice bulletin number 230 on obesity in pregnancy in June of 2021. Just as it was for advanced maternal age, obesity or BMI is an independent risk factor for stillbirth. Okay, let's knock out some numbers here. Although the absolute risk of stillbirth is still low, an increase of roughly 1 and 1.9 per thousand is seen in overweight and obese women respectfully. The risk of stillbirth rises with increasing obesity even after controlling for characteristics including maternal age, nulliparity, and comorbid conditions. The hazard ratio for stillbirth is 1.7 for pre-pregnancy BMI between 30 and 34, but that hazard ratio now changes to 2 for BMIs at 35 to 39, and it's 2.48 for BMI greater than 40. Obesity in pregnancy is associated with an increased risk of early fetal loss as well as stillbirth, so it hits it on both ends. For patients with pre-pregnancy BMI of 35 to 39, weekly antenatal fetal surveillance can be considered beginning at 37 gestational weeks. And for patients with pre-pregnancy BMI of 40 or greater, then antepartum fetal surveillance can begin starting at 34 weeks of gestation. So there's a couple of big messages here. Just as with AMA, obesity in pregnancy is bad. But you have to remember some key words here. It's not the patient's current BMI. The big take-home in the clinical pearl is that it's pre-pregnancy BMI. In other words, how what her condition was when she got pregnant. So for patients with pre-pregnancy BMI of 35, surveillance begins at term. It's early term, but it's still 37 weeks. And for patients whose BMI is 40 or greater, and remember that's pre-pregnancy, then it can begin at 34 weeks. But if you notice, there's actually no recommendation between a pre-pregnancy BMI of 30 to 34. This is also clearly stated in the Indications for Outpatient Fetal Surveillance, which was a committee opinion from the college, remember that was 828, where the factor is listed as pre-pregnancy BMI, and it's very clearly stated there. Pre-pregnancy BMI of 35 starts at 37 weeks, and then pre-pregnancy BMI of 40 or above starts at 34 weeks. Okay, and remember, we're talking about obesity as a standalone factor. No hypertension, no growth restriction, uh, no diabetes. So if BMI is the only factor and it's pre-pregnancy BMI, then that's the college guidelines, which is the same for SMFM, for endopartum fetal surveillance. Okay, now that we're ready to leave this section on obesity, so what's the take-home? Is it wrong to do endopartum fetal surveillance between 30 and 34 BMI? It's not wrong. There's just no data. The hazard ratio is 1.7. It is elevated, but it doesn't cross 2 until you hit 35. So I'm just trying to tell you what the, what the college guidance is, which is the same for SMFM, that endopartum fetal surveillance begins at a pre-pregnancy BMI, not a current BMI, and there really is not a recommendation between 30 and 35. 34 pre-pregnancy BMI. All right, so this time yesterday, I already had these two things across my desk, and I'm like, is nobody reading these bulletins? What is going on? I know, it's very minor, but it doesn't take a lot to really flip my switch. I'm working on it, okay? I'm working on it. 
<laughs> All right. So then the third thing came out, which is, hey, Dr. Shaba,、um, I just have to check out this patient to you. She's got a previous cerclage for a shortened cervix. She's already on progesterone,、uh, and her last transvaginal ultrasound was X centimeters. And that's where I put on the brakes.、Uh, what? So here's how this works. All right. Remember that ACOG still says that universal cervical screening is acceptable, even though we're not sure what to do with that because. Progesterone has now been poo pooed in all the trials, but nonetheless, it's okay to check for cervical length between 18 and 22 weeks and six, and that's in the general population. If they have a history of preterm birth, that's different. You can actually start checking a little earlier, okay? But in the general population, 18 to 22, and we've got plenty of podcasts on that. All right, if it's beyond 25 millimeters, that's considered okay. And if it's less than 25, historically, they could be offered vaginal progesterone. Remember, if they don't have a history, Of preterm birth, and then the, the cervix gets very short. Defined as less than ten or fifteen millimeters, based on who you read, then you can offer an ultrasound indicated cerclage. Fine, but it's very clear from ACOG stance and all the data that once you place a cerclage, the follow up by ultrasound for cervical length is kind of mute. I mean, there, there, there's no point to do that because you're doing the ultrasound. To see when you should do the cerclage. So if you do the cerclage, you don't really have to do the transvaginal ultrasound for cervical length. Makes sense. In ACOG's prediction and prevention of spontaneous preterm birth, it's actually stated right there. There's a whole section: cervical length monitoring and subsequent intervention. Well, it's very clear in patients who've already received a cerclage. Quote: Further ultrasound monitoring of cervical length does not appear to be beneficial. End quote. And the simple thing is, how's that going to change management? I mean, what else are you going to do? You're not going to take it out unless there's signs or symptoms of rupture or true labor. So, if a patient has a cerclagin, you do not need to keep checking cervical length. And just to be complete, that reference is Practice Bulletin Number Two Three Four, which was released August 2021 on the prediction and prevention of spontaneous preterm birth. Ah,、oh, I feel so much better that I got that off my chest. I mean, I know that there are so many other things that we could be upset about, and that really wasn't a big deal. But it's just human nature. I get it, and I really do need to take a breath and chill out. Anyway, I hope this podcast was helpful to you. I am working on my own issues. All right, just to let you know, if you're worried about me, I'm okay. I've done this well for so many years.、Uh, although I could always be better. All right, podcast family, we're thankful for you, and we'll see you on another episode of Clinical Pearls. Hold up. 